Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Animales You are on 3CR 855 AM and that was Sally Goldner's show, Out of the Pan. It just finished. It was uh, Sally had Jason on today, didn't you? I've still got Sally in the studio, actually. And they were talking about the Better Together conference that happened in January, which um, sounded amazing and like it knitted together a lot, of, a lot of love and hope between various groups. I hope I can say that. Can I, Sally? You can. <laughs> and you are now tuned into Freedom of Species and we are bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves and raising awareness about issues concerning animals from advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and appreciation. So thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend and I'm joined in the studio today by Jill Pickering who is the President of the Australian Brumby Alliance and we're going to talk about the uh, talk of culling of brumbies, of snowy brumbies, in the National Park in Victoria specifically today. So welcome to the program, Jill. Thanks for taking time for us. Um, Perhaps we can start with what the Australian Brumby Alliance, what that group is and who you represent. Okay, thanks for having me on the program. Um, The Australian Brumby Alliance was formed 10 years ago by people who were keen to get better management uh, of brumbies in the wild uh, and also to have a ret- to retain a reasonable number of brumbies uh, that are not going to damage the environment. Uh, and that still stands for the Australian Brumby Alliance. We also um, are very keen to keep to dialogue rather than get too extreme and then lose the chance to get into dialogue with different interest groups and in particular with Parks Victoria. We feel strongly if you can't sit down and talk about things, um, you're never going to progress an issue. Um, That's really interesting because it is about... um Taking the emotion out of it from all sides, because every, every um, one I talk to about this issue is there is a lot of emotion, and and both all sides are saying we're not being emotional about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, you're very much for opening up the the dialogue there. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. We you know we say look instead of conflict, let's work together. Let's sit around the table. Let's look at the differences. The um, there's a fine balance we walk because we also lobby for retention of an well-managed numbers in the park. We do not support extermination, which is what is on the uh, firmly on the agenda now with Parks Victoria's current plan for the Victorian Alpine regions in Bogong High Plains. So we have to be able to state our case recognise there are differences, but try and find different ways of getting our message across, the same as any other advocacy group would be doing. When you were founded 10 years ago, it was kind of from a lot of people uh, wouldn't really know about the what happened in the Guy Fawkes National Park. Can you briefly go through that because that's why your foundation was yes that's yeah. that's right we uh, we we really started 
um, via Jan Carter, who after the, who lived near the Guy Fawkes area, was horrified at the results of the aerial shooting and even that it could be done in such secrecy um, that she set up Save the Brumbies, which was one of the early groups across Australia. And then other groups started. Um, I came to know... I actually came to learn about Brumbies um, riding on Bogon High Plains with a tour group. And they said one day, oh, we're going over the hills now to have a look at Bogon Brumbies. And I said, wow, that's incredible. And I, <clears throat> since then, I've come a long way. <laughs> In fact, it's almost full circle now trying to stop those remaining Brumbies from Bogon High Plains being eradicated. Uh, can you talk about where where is the Bogon High Plains for those that are um, city-centric? <laughs> the, basically, you go up towards Victorian border, then turn right towards Bogong. There's a little town called Bogong and, um, you know, I forget, is it Mount Beauty or is that further south? I think that's further uh, south. And then yeah. basically you head up to Falls Creek Resort. Okay. The resort is on like a corner of a of the area that um, Brumbies are in. You drive through the Brumby area to get to the resort and there's an area called Young's Tops, which is just south and southwestish of the resort, which is the historic area of where the Bogong High Plains Brumbies were originally bred and then left to go wild and establish themselves, evolving over 150 years or so to be successfully reproductive and survive. That's an area that is part of yes. the Snowies, what yeah. we it's, it's an alpine area. To. Yep, alpine yes. area, and it's a national park. So that's what we're focusing on today. And there was a rally during the week about against the culling of these specific brumbies. Now, why are we rallying now against this cull, Jill? And I know you just mentioned that you are f- definitely for a management of the population, yes. the ABAR, but the fact is they want to eradicate all Brumbies from that area, like kill them all. It's not so much they're going to kill them all. I think this plan, Parks Victoria have tried to give the Brumbies as much chance as possible by passive trapping and then le- allowing them to be collected for rehoming. Now, for Bogong, where the numbers are only between 64 and 80, that is a possibility which which should work. But they are determined to remove every Brumby. Now, the plan says um, they'll trap and remove, and those that are trap shy, something like um, will be dealt with by other means. Now, those other means are ground shooting the free-roaming remaining families, mobs, which which we have a problem with, but that's not really the key issue. The key issue is those Brumbies, in our view, are, are not doing the damage that the impact report, which was released halfway through the feedback period, uh, of which there's only one week to go, we feel is is flawed and misleading. If it was a a study we could respect, we could understand the way it was done, the the strategies, the data was robust, the conclusions sensible, that would be different. But we do not see that. You're on 3CR 855am, the Freedom of Species show, if you've just tuned in, and we're talking to Jill Pickering from the Australian Brumby Alliance. And we're talking about there was a, a rally... Uh, last week on against the Brumby Cull in the Bogon High Plains. Jill, can I just ask you to unpack what you've just said about what you think the you think it's pretty fraught, the evidence that they've got that the Brumby's doing damage in that area. I'm sure you agree that they do damage, but every species does damage and there's flow on effects of also benefits in the environment, which we will get to. But can you take us through those what you talk about as inconsistencies and injustices in this actual plan. Can we go through them? Sure. Well, I've talked about the way they'll 
remove the Brumbies from Bogon High Plains, although the plan doesn't detail the final ground shooting of Trapshy. Uh, I need to say we are, we applaud Parks Victoria for not using aerial or ground shooting in the plan as such, um, but focus on passive trapping. We are concerned at the few that remain that are trapped shy. Um, in terms of the way Parks... One of the problems is Parks Victoria, and I may be slightly diverging, Parks Victoria say they will remove all the Brumbies from Bogong High Plains because under pest species regulations... That's what you do. If the pest numbers are too large, you contain them. If they're small, you remove them. Then you don't have to bother with them anymore. Now, we argue also that Parks Victoria was a part of the review done by New South Wales Parks under context in 2015 that concluded that Brumbies in the Alpine area in both New South Wales and Victoria are an attribute to the environment. They're not saying leave them alone, but they're saying don't take them all out because they are an attribute. How so? How are they an attribute? Um, Well, through things like the the folklore, the poems, the songs, that they are part of what the Australians think of when they think of the Alpine regions. They also think, you know, four-wheel driving, hiking and other things. But masses of people have said to us, you know, where can we go and see, have asked us, where can we go and see Brumbies? Even people from overseas come and say, look, we've come to see the Brumbies, where can we go? Now, up to fairly recently, we would have said Bogong High Plains because that's a fairly... You don't have to travel that far. You don't have to go too far away from the road and you can see Brumbies. Well, I was talking to someone else who was up there just recently, I think last weekend, and they said they hardly saw any Brumbies. What they did see was pretty healthy-looking land. It's not to say, like Emma says, that the Brumbies don't cause impacts, but there are many causes of impacts and the one thing that parks don't talk about is positive impacts. An impact on its own is just an action. But what does that mean? Does it make it better or does it make it worse for the environment? Is it a positive or negative impact? We argue, and I think we're talking about that later on, on the positives. We can talk about that Uh now if we're there, if you'd like. Well, (laughs) Okay. In the positive flow, I guess. Well, you've said that, yeah, definitely they're a tourist attraction, yes, but when you come into the management of the actual park, with benefits you've got, I know I've heard that they help native species when it's snowing, for example, reach the forage underneath the snow with their hooves. They kind of dig, so they do that thing. With their hooves, they... They scoop away the snow. They scoop don't dig the a big hole. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So what other kind of... Okay, well, that is definitely one. Um, for instance, and I've got references, Dina Milton, 1991, found antelope in arid grassy dunes that spent much time under shady trees were found to trample soil locally but also enrich it with their facial, facial, I can never pronounce that, pellets. Fecal pellets, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, fecal. <laughs> um, Zalba and Kuzani, 2004, found avian birds, that is, richness and diversity was higher in areas subject to moderate levels of grazing than areas in which horses had been excluded. And this is because... A lot of species need really short, fresh, regular supply of green grass. A lot of these studies point to the fact that you need moderate grazing. So just talking grazing is not the answer. It's, it's the, the amount of degree of grazing. And this is where the Australian Brumby Alliance is urging Parks Victoria to do proper, to do robust science that will show at what level the horses are best for the particular areas they're in because many references 
point to moderate grazing. Now, each area is different. We have to identify in numbers what that area is equating to moderate. You know, is it 50? Is it 100? Is it 150? If it's 1,500 in the Bogong High Plains, that's terrible. But also we need to get more cluey on how to tell the difference between other prints. A lot of the report talks about pulse damage with 14 photos. Now, all but two of them. Sorry, is that what damage was that? The horse damage. Oh, yeah, sorry, horse damage. (laughs) (laughs) And in 12 of those photos, I. I don't see any sign of hoof prints, and I have yet to be shown, but I do see prints that are much more likened to cloven deer hooves. I can see the pointy bits. One of the problems for parks is that, in fact, a deer print is like a hoof print, horse print, in reverse. So for the deer, they've got the round pad at the back and then they end up with a couple of toes at the front. And there's with a horse, there's a slight V-shape where where the hoof joins the the horse in general, where the blood supply goes. So to the undiscerning eye, there could be confusion, Um, which is one of the things we'd like clarified. It sounds very much like a scapegoating of this large mammal and that you're saying that the way that Parks Victoria has framed this issue leads directly to look at these photos, look at the damage that's been done. So for the average Joe Blow to look at that, you go, well, of course, this very big animal and look at that, but not taking in the other components of other species, including, as you've mentioned before on the show, the two-legged kind Yes, humans going in there and and you know. Yep, saw 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 a few human prints in the photos. Also, we carry grass seeds and things on our when we yes. go through the yes. national park. Yes, there's park. reports so, on hikers, and they carry in a ton of seed. I haven't got that reference with me, but yeah, it's on the Australian Brumby Alliance website. So what you're saying is it's very it's we have this narrow focus when it comes to okay, what's causing the damage. This species, let's get rid of that species. Yep. Uh, and, mm-hmm. Parks, um, not parks, all of us tend to, if we don't like something, we kill it, which is not really a very subtle way of dealing with things. <laughs> Interestingly, this report, this damage report on horse damage, makes no, does provides no acknowledgement of the huge numbers of samba deer around. Not saying that the samba deer cause all the problem either. It's still the issue of what exactly does the, is negative about the damage and the proportion of that damage in the area. Okay. Um, just in relation to samba deer, we would argue that all this money being spent on removing the remaining 64 to 80 Bogong Brumbies will do nothing to improve the environment because if you take 175,000 Samba deer reported across the Victorian Alps and the 2,350 plus the 64 on Bogong and divide that, you get 320 Samba deer to one Brumby. So removing 64 to 80 Brumbies from Bogong High Plains will still leave 320 times that doing the, causing the impacts. It, it, it'll have no effect. So the Samba hoof is as big as, well, well the Samba is as, 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 as a horse hoof. It can yeah. get as, as heavy yeah. as an as a alpine Brumby. You know, they're, the, they're similar weights. I don't know enough about their feet to be able to know the size of the foot, but the I've been looking at deer tracks to be able to identify them in the mud, and uh, yeah, I mean, we we need we need categoric, clear 
robust science to identify all this. Which is interesting because you've mentioned there isn't any peer-reviewed, which is the gold Mm. scientific standard of science before we take these kind of actions. There's actually none and this... That's right. And this this has been reported by Australian scientists. What we need is peer-reviewed and published reports because they are then peer-reviewed by... Um, not only skilled people in Australia but overseas as well, which means the quality of the final paper is going to be world standard. Um, It's not done at the moment. For instance, this report, examples of what we see as false information in the impact report is it talks about cumulative damage. You look at the reference It's based on farm paddock studies where you've got important, incredible densities of animals. Not 64 to 80 brumbies across the whole of the Bogong High Plains. So so can you just unpack that a bit? What do you mean? They just, for the impact, environmental impact statement kind of thing, they... Yeah, the the damage report can't account for... uh, I'll take it back a step. The, The damage report says they are surprised that despite a small number of, and in this case it's only 13 Brumbies around Mount Nels, that the damage is so intense and increasing. Then the next, that was the interim report, then the final report comes up with what we would say is a a creative answer, um, and that is that the damage is increasing because it's accumulative. So, you know, even 13 horses somehow will go round and round and round and the impacts will get worse. The, the reference that's quoted is, is talking about compacting soils on a farm with, with large herds of cattle and you need to rotate the oh, land so and all this sort that of thing. Evidence yes. that was um, actually Sorry, yeah, obviously on, I'm on farmland on rather yes. than rather than horse grazing, country. which covers you know a large area. And one of the benefits of horse grazing is they just move around this whole area slowly, and that means that they rest the area. They do their automatic um, rotational grazing because. They leave the area, move on to the next, eat that, move on to the next. By the time they get back to the first one, it's grown again. Uh, and all the birds that enjoy short, fresh green grass um, can enjoy it. Mm. Uh, another thing this report said, it, the report said, which is part of the cumulative damage that they were linking to, they said... Dung takes five years to decompose in alpine areas. Now, I read that report. It's based on cattle dung. Now, cattle dung is incredibly different to horse dung. You've only got to look at the flat, sploshy pads of dung and and the smaller, fluffy bits of horse dung. I looked up and... I found two studies, uh, I didn't find a lot, that say on average horse dung in alpine conditions takes just over a year to decompose. Now this is a serious difference and this is done by a study backed by Parks Victoria. So I imagine the components of the actual um, the faeces or the dung would be very different as yes. well because their digestive processes are very different. That's that right, right, yes, yeah. yes. The, the horse only partially digests and the dung that comes out is basically a mixture of grassy bits with, I don't know, saliva or whatever around it. Um, it it's, it's it, okay, it may take a year to totally decompose. But within two or three days of coming out of the horse, there is no smell, no sense of smell. It's just for many people in the environmentalist world, it's unpleasant to look at. (laughs) But it's very Um, beneficial for the environment. But it's incredibly beneficial. And again, there are studies overseas that show that um, many countries are now reintroducing what they call like pseudo-megafauna because 
it, in terms of evolution, when the world was being created, animals got bigger and bigger and more and more varied and eventually in a very lush period of the world history, you had these huge megafauna, much heavier than a horse, up to a 1,000 kilograms. And that enabled the soil to be enriched in a way it never had before, which then led to a much greater burst of diversity coming. Now, this happened in Australia as well. We hear parks say, Oh, Australia, Australian soil didn't develop with hard, heavy hooves. Well, I'm sorry, but there are megafauna, if you look at um, the references, that, as I said, weigh up to a 1,000 kilogram. And one of them that weighed not quite as much as a 1,000 had a hoof-like foot. So Australia did evolve. Um, but this is this is just an example where really we're sort of like in, in a court of law, we're saying, well, this is what we think, this is what you think. Mm. And rather than accentuate that too much, I go back to the concept of the Australian Brumby Alliances. Let's, okay, there's flaws in everything. We see flaws in the impact pan. Others see flaws in our concept that there are minimum numbers of Brumbies that can exist in the parks. So let's sit down together around the table, design a study that we're all involved in and therefore all committed to the results of the study. It's just a waste of money, one side getting one lot of information, another side getting another lot. We must do this together. If we're to move beyond an era of conflict. Another thing the report said, priority sites were selected. Well, one of the first things you do in a study is you have control sites and you have random sites. Tell so, us more about that, Jill, for those that don't uh, know about that. <laughs> well, I don't know a lot, but I, I know that, you know, if you want to show, for instance, that the horses cause that damage, you need to have, this is in my simple com way of looking at it you need a, a, a an area you need say three areas of the same type of soil height environment etc one with no horses but all the other animals that might be on the area another one that just has horses and another one that excludes as the exclusion zones do all grazing animals and then you look at the differences that's what I mean by that. What about a lot of ecologists say to me that the, the moss bogs are really important. Oh, yes, yes. So in this, what we're talking about is that Bogon High Plains area. Yes. Do you agree that just a minimising of the population, like a control, what the ABA is after, rather than a complete eradication, is that going to be enough to protect those specifically sensitive areas that we, we all would want? That's, oh yes, that yes. same outcome. Yes, yeah, totally. Those areas yeah. where those particular, you know, frogs or whatever they are, are actually protected and able to thrive as well. Um, well, we we would argue that horses don't like damp areas. Interestingly, this Im- impact report um, says that horses are attracted to wet areas. Well, I've never seen studies that show that they go to water to drink, but that's it. They may make a track through the bog to get to another area where they graze. But again, the the science is not clear enough on whether it's deer or tracks or a road. Well, that's probably pretty clear. I mean, you know, there are other reasons that bogs can get damaged, not just horses. And in fact, one area I remember looking at in New South Wales... They said, oh, well, for you know, for a long time, people used to dig up the peat. So they were actually digging up the peat bogs. What for? What were they using? <laughs> for fuel, for, for oh, fires. Course, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So, you know, let's, mind you, I'm a horse advocate. Let, let's look, look at this in perspective. 
You are on 3CR at double five am on the Freedom of Species show. We're talking with Jill Pickering from the Australian Brumby Alliance. We might just take a break there and um, let Jill rest her voice and mine. And we're going to play a song by Emily Waramara. <laughs> This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Uh, You're on Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves, and we're with Jill Pickering, President of the Australian Brumby Association. We're talking about uh, the, well, imminent, really, cull of the Brumbies, of which are how many in the Bogon High Plains? 64 to 80. 64 to 80. Well, the last count was 64 to 80. Yeah. Since then, some have been taken out and some have probably been born. And you would, we've got a week to go. Yes, it's very important people get onto the engaged website of Parks Victoria and submit either a, 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 you know, a few paragraphs of their own or write letters to Parks Victoria about what it is that the park of Bogong High Plains means to them and from our point of view in terms of the values they see, the heritage values they see the aesthetic values when they look at Brumbies. But you've got to get your results in for everyone by next Friday, 5 o'clock, I think. And you've briefly referred to that there's not peer-reviewed science on the advantages they have in the ecosystem as well as they just seem to be scapegoating and concentrating on the damage without really proper, robust evidence to back the action to, to cull them all to jump to the killing process. It's hard for us, though, Jill. Most of us go to national parks. We consider them as a gold standard of protection for our precious bushland. And we go there. It's wondrous and beautiful. So it is a bit tricky for the average person to consider that that they, you know, that they don't know what they're doing. And that's, you know, leave it up to the experts. They know what they're doing if, if... you know, that management control needs to be done, it needs to be done. It is indeed complex. You were talking before about you wanted to widen the scope that, you know, indeed a lot of us have, or Parks Victoria represent, about management as a whole. Yes. And and also, how can I put it, a, a much broader view of what, of what is needed to protect an environment. We, from a lobby angle, get the sense that the reason a horse is not considered suitable for the Alps is because it's not native. But that doesn't really tell you anything. Again, you need the science to say, well, having that horse in that area, you know, there's so many less moths or so many more spiders or, you know, it's got to be quantified with how the the land has reacted to it. And there's a growing sense of understanding across the world um, focused at a conference I went to, which I found really enlightening, near Sydney. The Centre for Compassionate Conservation held a week-long conference and there were so many new innovative ways of thinking about the native and non-native issues. It was most refreshing. One of the things, for instance, um, it was said was it's impractical to try to restore ecosystems to some rightful, in inverted commas, historical state. It is time for conservationists to focus much more on the functions of species and much less on where they originated. This is Davis 2011. So so that's what we're trying to get the message across. You know, what is actually happening? Don't just think of them as native or non-native. Mm. Then there's the argument, well, when does 
non-native become native. Um, and this is Australia's too young a country to have probably made too many steps in that direction. But countries that have gone on for centuries, well, Australia has, but under the hands of the Aboriginals who managed it very well. Um, but in terms of the European time, it's it's only a couple of hundred years or so. You know, animals that wandered into a new area after centuries or so, they're, they're natural, they're native, because that's what everyone sees. They think, well, they must have been there. That labelling of non-native and native doesn't really serve the purpose of seeing the land at the present time and what species are looking at the land and who's serving good serving it the best in the present landscape and then still having management but not mm. dividing it up as in non-native native if um, animals are serving the ecology well and each other well, then they're doing a service, would you say? Is that what yes, it, yeah. yes. Um, and also an example of just using a classification native versus non-native to equal good or bad. Uh, one of our... Um, uh, feedback meetings uh, in the key stakeholder groups early last year, I said to Parks, what exactly is an impact that you claim the horses do? And they said, well, they walk along a track. I said, oh, so if a horse, if several horses walk along a track and make a track, that's called an impact. But if humans walk along a track and make a, a path, that's not called an impact, that's called a footpath. If bikes cycle along and make a track, that's not called an impact, that's called a cycle track. Um, and then I was beginning to lose everyone, so I just ended up with... <laughs> <laughs> and then if, ro if, if vehicles go along a track... That's not an impact. That's called a road. You know, it's. To, I suddenly felt the illogicness. That's not a good word of the situation. So, so, different animals could do different things, including humans. But it got different names depending on whether it was helpful or not to humans. So there's also some interesting articles on things like Keep Science Credible, um, which is talking about not doing science to meet political ends, but doing science that's objective and covers all issues. Um, one um, wildlife ecologist told me, science should never be afraid of being wrong. In inverted commas. Mm. Um, rethinking pest strategies. Um, untangled, introduced and invasive species. Crystal Fortlewanger has done a, a good paper on this. Again, it's just along the theme of what exactly does native or non-native mean? I've probably done that one to It's just it, to well, death. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, can't, I guess it comes back to your point about how... You can't. We can't look at things so binary, isn't yes. it? The foundation and yes, and that's a good point. and just we seem to be taking on just the argument we want, backing it up with the science or pseudoscience or lack there of peer-reviewed science to meet our objective or political objective. An example of that, for instance, is yep. okay. We asked Parks Victoria, give us the evidence that proves that horses are damaging the environment and therefore they need to be lowered in numbers. They came back with a list of about eight papers. They, they said there's plenty more, but they thought that eight would be enough for us to read, and I think they were probably right. <laughs> and in, in Park's words, they said, Diring 1990 is an oldie but a goodie. And we've used this for many years as one of the foundation studies. And they have, just about every document they have, quotes Diring, who talks about compacting foot, footprints on 
tracks. But what Parks do not say is that in the, in the detail of that report, Diring also proportioned that across the whole area. And the result was that under 1% of the area Diring studied had this impact that was so terrible. 99.8% of the area was not, of her area, was not subject to horse walking tracks. Now, that's the sort of balance we need to bring into our science today. You know, okay, there's, there's an impact, but how does it relate, I think the word is spatially, um, across the area? Because we have this situation where so many people go up to Bogong High Plains and say, well, I couldn't see any damage. Now, obviously, from the photos, there is damage, but it can't be that great a mass. Otherwise, people would come back every time saying, oh, the damage I saw, you know. Yeah. Again, we need to sit down together around the table and work out something together. We do not have time to do that in the one week left. (laughs) (laughs) But we do But you can put your issues forward with suggestions of what could be done and why you love going to Bogong High Plains and the rest of the Alpine area. You're on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species Show, and Jill Pickering, President of the Australian Brumby Alliance, is coming to talk about the rally, basically, that took place last week against the cull of the Brumbies in the Bogon High Plains in Victoria, and we have a week left to to voice the fact that you you know want proper evidence around the damage the Brumbies are causing, etc., because Parks Victoria are after a complete eradication of, of the, the Bogon High Plain Brumbies. Jill, can we just talk about they're wanting ground shooting? Is that right, if, they, um, if it's to go ahead? The park plan states that there will be no aerial shooting or ground shooting en masse. It doesn't say en masse, but it, it, which, which we fully support, you know, that we, we do not want aerial shooting or ground shooting. For Bogong High Plains, it says they, the, the, the rumbers will be trapped and those that are trap shy will be... Uh, removed by other means. What do you mean by trap shy? Can you take us through uh, that process? Okay, yeah. so when when um, when a brumby when brumbies are trapped, you it conceptually you have like a circle with a gap each end, and in the middle of it you put something the horses like. And for for the Bogong High Plains area, it's minerals, so a mineral lick. They'll come for the mineral lick. So they come in, they go out the other end. They come in, they go out the other end, and then the trapper will close one end off and they'll come in and go out. And when the trapper feels they're comfortable enough, they set the gate in the one open end so that it's triggered by a horse that reaches the opposite end. And then you can trap anything, depending on the size of the mob, between, say, two and eight. Um, So they may separate mobs in that process? No. Or separate family groups in that process? Uh, Well, they can. Um, because when the gate's shut, it could particularly, there are experiences where a foal's left out or a foal's come in and the mum hasn't come in. Um, but I know certainly in New South Wales, and I would hope this happens over here, I, I'm pretty sure it would, um, if, there's a, if there's a foal and mare separate, they'll let one out, whichever. If they can't get the other one in, they'll let the foal out or vice versa. Um but really, this is probably the least inhumane way of trapping horses. Now, there are some horses that think, ah, oh, I'm not, I don't really trust this concept. You know, this doesn't look good to me. I don't like the feel. I'm not going to go into the trap, even though there's a salt lick. Or I might go in while there's two gaps, but, you know, not when there's only one. And they become savvy and. So they just won't go into the traps. And that's what we mean by trap shy. It's probably trap savvy. <laughs> <laughs> and what, our smart, um, and what do they do with the trap shy horses, well, Jill? Well, what we've been told verbally is that they will be shot by someone walking around on the ground. which In front not... of the horses that have been trapped yeah. inside the trap? Uh, No, not in front of those horses, but obviously in front of the other horses that that horse is with, you know, because the the horses are uh, family-orientated. 
They'll be in groups. So if you're going to kill what's left, shoot what's left, then, you know, who are you going to choose first, the foals or the mares or the stallions? Or are you going to have people blasting from all directions just, oh, I don't know, I'm probably best not to go too far down that track. But needless to say, passive trapping for Bogong High Plains to exterminate the group will involve, according to Parks, shoot ground shooting the remaining Brumbies that are trap savvy. That are trap savvy, yeah. Yeah. And the horses, so a very traumatic experience, obviously, and the horses that are then trapped, what happens to those horses? Okay, now um, for Bogong High Plains, um, uh, the Victorian Brumby Association takes them and... Uh, and rehomes them. So what they do is they come up with a truck. No good coming up with a horse float when you're trying to collect horses direct from the wild and load them onto the cattle truck and then take them back, let them come out of the truck into a smallish area so they don't take off and gallop over the fence. And then there's only a small area, so you've got to feed them and... um Therefore, you you know put hay in, and then slowly you work onto the gentling, and and you end up with a brumby that is just so beautiful and loving and caring and a, an amazing individual. Um, now, what parks are saying for the alpine areas are where they're taking out four hundred, they will a year from the main alpine area. They'll offer them to rehoming groups, but the reality is there are very few rehoming people skilled, and probably you know eighty percent or more will then be shot on the spot. Euthanized is probably the term I would use because it will be controlled. It won't be panicked, and you, there's, you put up a race system and draw, draw them away from the um, trap site so that theoretically the other horses don't know what's going on. But it's such a waste. And this is the rally was about saying, hey, this is our heritage. This is what informs us about our past. This is valuable. This is precious. It's recognized that by context that the, that the horses are an attribute to their, their alpine areas. And you need to think again. Think outside the box to find a way to balance this valuable history that you want to exterminate because it's called a pest on on a, an impact report that is, in our view, seriously flawed and misleading. And we seem to have no way of getting across the need to negotiate further it's an absolute, it's a done deal. And this is what I think as lobbyists we find incredibly sad. We see the really good values. We know too many horses cause this damage. We are not convinced with the impact report that that damage is proven because there are so many incorrect statements. We might leave it there, Jill, because we're, we're running out of a bit of time. And don't forget to put your responses in by next Friday, this Ex coming Friday. Excellent. And thank you so much. It is a complex issue and we've had you on the show before and a few other people on this issue and I'll, I'll put those on the podcast page for today as well because there's a lot of information to take in. In the meantime, head to the Australian Brumby Association. Uh, yeah, go uh, Alliance, to the sorry, Australian website. Brumby Alliance uh, or probably more so the Victorian Brumby Association Facebook so, Excellent. and you just Google Victorian Brumby Association Facebook and Excellent. it'll come up. Thank you, Jill. Thanks. We'll just go to a community service announcement now. In La Mama's latest play, Roger has been drugged and attacked with an axe, his brother and daughter brutally killed. Roger is a rhino, a victim of poachers in South Africa. He is determined to recover. Kevin Summers and Liam Gillespie star in this short play, no Surrender by Mike Smith at La Mama Theatre, Carlton, February 7 to 18. Book by phone 9347 6948 or at lamama.com.au.
because animals have feelings too. A 3CR supporter. You are on Freedom of Species and that sounds like a, a great play to get to at La Mama Theatre. Okay, I've got another community service announcement. Uh, Farm Animal Rescue are actually in the middle of their Australia's largest vegan barbecue by inviting Australians to host or attend meatless barbecues from now until the 21st of February to just show people the, the alternatives to what you can eat. So basically, please go to farmanimalrescue.org.au and register an event. You can host a vegan barbecue fundraising event of your own and invite four or more guests. You can join an already hosted event and include exciting and interesting meat-free meals in your barbecue as an inspiration for other people to get involved Now, just quote from their media release, as a charity, Farm is dedicated to creating a more compassionate world for farm animals through education and through sharing the stories of farm animals. FAR has created this annual event to bring people together to share meatless barbecue options and to help reduce the amount of specifically lamb consumed at this time of year. So anyway, that wraps it up for today. Thank you so much, Jill, uh, for coming in again. And also, if you'd like to contact us, please do on freedomofspecies.org, Twitter or Facebook or via the website. If you've missed the show, recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Taking us out is a tune called Circle the World. Once a year we circle the world Saying ain't it time to bury the guns Our time has come And we have begun To circle the world You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.